Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Our last episode took a philosophical deep dive into proving God exists. So this week, Bishop answers the question, now what? What's the process for potentially joining the church? Then what are some faithful Catholic news sources? The show wraps up with listeners submitted questions on in vitro fertilization, the rapture, and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman with our bishop. Thank you again, Bishop, for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to see you. Good to see you. How do you feel about fireworks? I enjoy fireworks. Yeah. yeah. You know, the ones that you watch in the sky or just, or are you talking about the ones that you play with yourself? Like, Either one. When's the oh, last time you lit a firecracker? A firework? Never. No, you, I don't you remember. Never have? I probably did, but it's so long ago I don't remember. Yeah, we we um yeah, I don't remember other than sparklers, uh-huh. very few. Yeah. No fountains. Maybe or back when I was a, a teenager. Bottle rockets. No, I can't, I don't think so. No. <laughs> yeah. I, we weren't very exciting with that. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, do you have a prayer for us this morning? I thought maybe the memorare. I don't remember if we've ever prayed the memorare together on okay. this show. So I don't know that we have. Yeah. Why don't we pray? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you know where that comes from? I always associate with St. Bernard. Now, I'm trying to think if he just made it popular, or maybe he wrote it. Hmm. I'd have to check that out. Is that the same, like, St. Bernard? St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Yeah. San Bernardo. Right. The, the dog? Some people say Bernard, some say Bernard. Okay. I say Bernard. Okay. Yeah. Good. It's popular. I, you know, a lot of Irish. My um, great-grandfather's name was Bernard. That was kind of really? a common Irish name. Sure. Yeah. Well, last week, we had such a great discussion with Dr. Lewis Pearson talking about proving that God exists. And one of the things we were thinking about is what would be the next thing? Say you convince somebody that God exists, maybe they're interested in joining the church, or maybe this is causing them to kind of change their life a little bit. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those next steps. What, if somebody was convinced by that, what would you encourage them maybe to do as a, as a next step? Like, oh, okay, now I believe that God exists. Now what? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good first step. Uh-huh. However, God revealed to us in Christ, the Holy Trinity, that's a matter of faith. So the the fact of the existence of God that one that can be known through reason. So if a person has reached that, then maybe they're open to learning more about who that God is. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the next step would be looking at the attributes of God, which you can do through the use of reason. What do you mean by that? What would the attributes of God be? All-powerful, all-knowing, perfect goodness, all of those things. Okay. Unchanging. Uh Uh-huh. And then you would move on to the God that Jesus revealed to us, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If the person has come to 
to recognize the existence of God or to accept that there is a God, then we have to look at who that God is, what is what do we know about him? What can we know by reason, which is somewhat limited, but then what can we know by faith? Mm -hmm. And the faith in what is revealed to us is also reasonable. So there's that period, I would say, I mean, there could be someone who is then very open to, let's say, join the RCIA to learn about the God that Christians believe in, Mm -hmm. but other people may not be ready for that step yet. So there may be more need for discussion, reading, and and pondering. So it really depends on each individual. How much of that could be done alone versus with somebody else? Uh, either you're a priest or you know another Catholic that you want to sit down and kind of ask these questions with versus just going to books and yeah. internet? You know, both. It depends on the person, personality. I mean, I know very intellectual people who will be very interested in reading more, and I would Mm -hmm. recommend various books or whatever. Uh, I might be open to discussion, but, you know, there are other people who maybe aren't as intellectually inclined that maybe they're not that interested in reading a lot, but they do think about it. It might be more helpful to them to sit down and speak with someone and then maybe have questions that they want to ask. And, you know, so... I take each person as an individual, what would be the best path for them? Some might even just feel satisfied, okay, I believe there's a God, but, or I, I know that there's a God, but, but they really aren't, you know, maybe not that interested in knowing more about him. And that becomes a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a person like that, I would uh, enter into a dialogue with to try to impress upon him, him or her why, why this is important. Mm-hmm for his or her life. You know, this has meaning for us. This isn't just some abstract thing. This is something that is deeply personal and affects how we live. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Everyone is in their own journey. And you mentioned book recommendations. I know you brought with you the Catechism of the Catholic Church as well as the Compendium to the Catechism. Are those things that you would suggest that people that are kind of curious and or searching and trying to figure things out, is that, that'd be a good yeah, place to start? I, I, definitely. I give out the catechism a lot or recommend the catechism a lot. There might be a stage, though, for some people that is prior to looking at the catechism, mm-hmm. although the first part of the catechism could be helpful to someone who is open, perhaps, to the, to the idea that, that of the Trinity. But there may be others that they need a little more philosophical preparation. Okay. <laughs> Again, I, I've met all kinds of people and I try to discern what would be most helpful. You mentioned RCIA might be an option. That's a more official kind of, uh, I'm, I'm really pretty serious about this, even though you're not necessarily committed to becoming Catholic at, at the end of RCIA program. It's a great place to inquire and to learn more. Can you explain what RCIA is? Well, it stands for Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults, and it is technically it's it's for those who are unbaptized, but we often have people who are already baptized, but perhaps in another, in a Protestant mm-hmm. denomination, and they can be part of the RCIA, but they're really not preparing for baptism. They're preparing to be received into the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and preparing for other sacraments. So some, oftentimes you'll see in an RCIA group 
or an RCIA class, both unbaptized people who we call catechumens and those who are already baptized but not yet Catholic, we call them candidates for full communion. But there can also be some who really don't have yet the intention of being baptized. But sometimes we'll join in RCA because they do want to learn more about the Catholic faith. I certainly welcome, would welcome anyone in that situation, although uh, probably be better to be in a group or individual sessions that would be more of an inquiry. Uh, okay. But, you know, some parishes just don't have enough resources or personnel to have inquiry groups, but uh -huh. that's a really good thing, or whatever you want to call it. It's kind of like a pre-evangelization. It's um, for people who are questioning that maybe they're Would not... that be something like an Alpha program? Yeah, it could be something like Alpha, although Alpha is very centered in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. In a sense, that's an introduction to, to, to knowing about Jesus. That would be one possibility if that's where a person is at, but a person may not maybe even at a stage that's prior to that, okay. like the existence of God stage or, or after that, mm -hmm. shortly after that. So RCAA, is that required to become Catholic as, a, as an adult? Do you have to go through an RCAA program? Well, for ba to be baptized, it would be the normal requirement. Obviously, there are always exceptions because if you have someone who's very sick, or in a term, has a terminal disease and is interested, we wouldn't require them to go to classes. Okay. You know, so you look at, but it's the normal way. And what would somebody expect? What what would these classes consist of? It's not quite like a a class that you would take for college or high school or something like that. A little less formal, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically a review of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, so the fundamental teachings of Catholicism. And it's done in a way that they're also experiencing the faith. So it's not just the intellectual part, which is really important, but also there should be a component of the spiritual part where a person is learning to pray, especially learning the Catholic tradition of prayer. But it's also, you know, the fact that it's done in community with a group and there's usually an RCIA team. So there's sponsors, there's catechists, there's maybe people from the parish. So... So they're becoming part of a community. So there's that interpersonal dimension that is really good in an RCIA process. And is that a, a full year kind of formation? It can be, that would be a minimum, I would say. Okay. Um, I would say most parishes will follow like an academic year. Some will ex have that longer, but one year is usually a pretty common here. It's a lot shorter than what they would have done in the early church. Okay. Uh, there would be a longer process. And for some people, some people do need a longer process, depending on their readiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to be ready for the promises of baptism. They have to be ready to embrace the Christian life. So one size doesn't always fit everyone. But do you have to be ready for that to take the classes? Ready for... Ready for baptism. Like No, no, no. I mean, you're getting ready for baptism yeah. through, through the process, through the classes, and through the spiritual life that is there. So there are some people who maybe have some difficulty with certain teachings mm -hmm. of the church. And when Easter comes, they're not really ready yet. Their faith hasn't matured enough. And people in their... I mean, I used to teach RCIA in a parish as a priest, and... Um, 
there are times where there was a delay. But then there's other situations where you have someone who comes into the RCIA who's already done a lot of thinking, praying, reading, and they're kind of like, they know this is what they want. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's a variety of, of stages that people can be at in their, in their faith journey. Another thing you mentioned was sponsors. What's the role of a sponsor and how, how would you pick a good sponsor? Yeah, a sponsor is really kind of a someone who supports a catechumen or a candidate, someone who kind of is at their side to to be a um, a guide. So, ideally, a sponsor should should get to know the one they're sponsoring very well and be there uh, if the candidate or the catechumen has questions. Sometimes a sponsor might accompany them to mass or get together with them even outside the, the classes. Maybe the candidate or the catechumen has some particular struggle about some teaching of the church, so the sponsor may give them extra time to talk about something. Also, a sponsor just um, prays for the one that they're sponsoring and just is accompanying them on this journey. So if I'm thinking about this, this sounds interesting and I want to learn more about it. Does it matter what parish I contact? What would you suggest I do next? Yeah. I mean, normally is the parish where you live. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we have uh, parishes are mostly territorial, so that would be kind of the normal thing. There are situations where perhaps a person prefers a different parish. Maybe they have friends at another parish, mm -hmm. or maybe they feel more spiritually nourished at another parish. So, so sometimes that will happen. But the first step I should be, I think, should normally be, well, where do I live? You know, what's the parish of my neighborhood? And if I'm not ready for that step, you mentioned some books, catechism, compendium to the catechism, any other resources, videos that you would suggest, or, or maybe even still reaching out to somebody at the church? And, and Yeah, I mean, you know, formed by the program that's by um, Augustine Institute, has a ton of Catholic resources. I would recommend that for some people because they, they have particular questions that they have or particular areas that they want to delve into. They can check out Formed. You know, sometimes I know some people who, who will do an online course, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they want to learn more about, like an introduction to theology course, or there's Catholic universities, et cetera, that have online courses. Mm -hmm. uh, so some people might like that route. Um, yeah. All right. You can check out formed.org to check out the videos that they have there. I think it's a monthly fee, but a lot of our parishes are already paying that. So you could check with your parish to see if they have a code to get on there. And actually, I think you can search on the website for your parish. If it's available, you can sign up under that. And it's all free videos then at that point. Audio as well. And I think maybe some eBooks too. Mm -hmm. So people can check that out. Kids stuff too. Mm -hmm. our, our kids watch videos on oh, there. Oh, good. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about finding trustworthy news sources and things we should avoid, as well as get to listener-submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we talked about RCIA, talked about joining the church. I one of the things that I've kind of noticed recently is where do we find good sources, not just for these theological things, but also for news. So much of the news seems so 
extreme, extreme one direction or another. What tips or suggestions would you have on finding a balanced news source? Or do we just try to absorb everything and try to synthesize before? I, somebody once said that we used to, it's something to the effect of, we used to go to our news to hear the truth so that we could form our opinions. Now we go to the news to hear opinions so we can try to filter out and figure out the truth. Wow. That's kind of, I think that's very accurate right? these days. Yeah. You know, we, we have, you know, a political polarization in our country, in our society, and we see this polarization also in the church, sadly, mm-hmm. some, you know, in some. So, you know, I always say to people to um, you know, really avoid some of the uh, radical or I would say extremist news sources, whether it's on the far right or the far left. Mm-hmm. I mean, both, because oftentimes it's um, oftentimes they don't faithfully communicate not only church teaching, but even their perspective on news, mm-hmm. on things that are happening in the church or in the world. But I do know some people who get caught up in that and they they kind of accept some extremist news source as gospel truth. Right. And they can really be misled. And sometimes they become very kind of bitter mm-hmm. and angry because they're buying all this conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. So anyhow, I think one should look, as you said, Kyle, for balanced uh, Catholic sources. The uh, diocesan newspaper uh-huh. would be always a good a good source. And for the listeners, I hope you're all subscribers uh-huh. to Today's Catholic, either the written version or uh, the online version. I think everyone, and that way you also get diocesan news. Mm-hmm. Some will ask for other specific suggestions. I, You know, our Sunday visitor is the largest English language publisher in the world, Catholic. It's centered right here in our diocese. And that the News Weekly, the weekly newspaper of our Sunday visitor is very balanced. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very much in accord with, with Catholic teaching, with the church, in communion with the bishop. That would be a very good source. And, you know, there's different websites. I, I would recommend Aletea mm-hmm. uh, is really a good Catholic news source. Aletea. The Vatican, the Vatican News Office, you know, I check that every day. Hmm. So as far as news is concerned and commentary too, I would highly recommend those. Now, I do read some of the, you know, it's important as bishop that I know what they're saying. So I'll read some that are kind of right wing and some that are kind of left wing just Mm -hmm. to hear what they're saying. But I kind of know where they're coming from and there's a certain bias. Right. Just like... If I'm looking at secular news, I'll I'll listen to I'll watch CNN and I'll watch Fox. Mm-hmm. I mean, very different approaches. Right. And you know, like you say, try to come to a, you know, what what's the truth here? Um, so anyhow, it's uh, uh, that's what I would recommend to listeners. Are the things that you would suggest avoiding? Like you, you talk about seeing these different extremes and and having the right lens. Yeah. In, when reading it, realize that it's biased. But are there things that you would say avoid altogether because it's yeah. it's not healthy well, for you? Some, yeah, some that have a, a clear agenda. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some that their agenda is basically one of dissent from church teaching. I mean, if it's a news source that is, you know, rejects the church's teachings about, for example, moral issues like abortion or or about marriage and 
or reject church teaching on various things, mm-hmm. you kind of know that, okay, they have an ideology. They have, they're a dissenting group, even though they may call themselves Catholic. They're not really in communion with right. the church, with the magisterium. And on the right wing, you have the same thing. There are some who claim orthodoxy, you know, like, oh, we're faithful, but but they've lost any semblance of gospel charity, mm-hmm. and they're just always on the attack. They're attacking bishops, they're attacking the pope, they're attacking, and so there's another agenda, a far-right agenda. So I think both are harmful. It seems like so much of it's based around fear and anxiety, like trying to, and, and people are drawn to that because you're scared, like, you know, you don't know what's underneath your kitchen sink that's going to kill you, you know, right. and so you got to listen at 10 to find out what it is. And that whole fear and anxiety seems so contrary to the gospel where it says perfect love casts out fear, like right. that, that those right. two things cannot be motivations for your, your news I'll say propaganda, you know, this kind of really extreme and negative news sources. Yeah. I think you're on to something there, Kyle. I think some people are just kind of like grasping for security, hmm. you know, so, so they grasp onto one of these groups or whatever and their point of view, but it's, it's actually a false security, you know? Yeah. Really, our security has to be in Christ and and our love for His Church. I mean, it's a, it's it's a matter of faith. The fact of the matter is, we are living in a very insecure world, and there are, for example, sins and failings of those in the church, including bishops, etc. But that doesn't justify this whole conspiracy approach, or you know, trying to find simple solutions that are really way out there. No, I mean, yeah, it's a messy world that we are in. But, you know, here we are. We're pilgrims and we we are Catholic and um, we move on with hope, not in fear. All right. Well, if you have a question for Bishop, you can ask by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598. And we have some questions about IVF, predestination, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our first question is As Catholics, do we believe we each have a predestined purpose? Great question. Yeah. I don't know if the questioner is thinking of the whole idea of predestination, but I'll talk a little bit about this. You know, when we, when we use that word predestination, it really refers to God's plan of salvation for us, for individuals. Okay. And um, in that sense, yes. This is, we believe, in predestination in that sense, the biblical sense. So, for example, the classic verse is in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it says, He chose us in Him before the world began. We should be holy and spotless in His sight. 
he has predestined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Also in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also calls, and those he called, he also justified. So we're predestined in the sense as we've been chosen for salvation. That's really what predestination means. Now, whether we're going to actually how we respond to that call is, you know, our human free will is involved. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, though, when you hear that word predestination, we think of the Calvinist, mm -hmm. the traditionally Calvinist position, which teaches that God chooses some to go to heaven and he damns others to go to hell. And that we reject. That is heresy. It's often called double predestination. Catholics do not accept double predestination, that erroneous belief that God actively chooses people for damnation. Like from their birth? Yeah, or, or from before? before their birth. Yeah. Double predestination is a, is a heresy. It really undermines free will, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that God has predestined some to go to hell. The church has, even in its early councils, all the way through to the Council of Trent, has taught against double predestination. So when we talk about sin, sin is not predestined by God. We have free will. Now, God permits sin, but he doesn't. It's really important because otherwise, I mean, it's the notion of God becomes a little warped. Mm -hmm. So basically... Predestination in the correct sense means God has a plan for each one of us. You know, it's up to us to accept it or not. Each of us has to be intent on following the will of God and the destiny that he has for us. And for all of us, that destiny is heaven. God wills us to go to heaven. He wants us to live with him forever. But we have to cooperate with, with, in his plans. So you have this meeting of predestination and free will. Okay, God has predestined us for salvation, to be his adopted sons in Jesus Christ. And, and we are, are called to cooperate in that plan. So we have the freedom to choose. It's not just some impersonal fate that awaits us. No, we have freedom. And I think that's, uh, I hope that answers, or that's the meaning of the question that the person uh, sent in to, to Redeemer. But if that's not, they can call in for more specificity. But I think that's what they were probably referring to. Yeah. All right, our next question. I'm having a hard time accepting the church's teaching against IVF. My good friend was able to conceive a son because of it. So how could it be wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I'm grateful for that question because there are a lot of people who question the church's teaching on in vitro fertilization, or, but I think it's good to look at reproductive technology in general. I mean, this has become an industry in our, in our country. Hmm. Let me begin that infertility is a growing problem in the United States, huh. and it's one of the most painful uh, experiences for a couple. And so it's good and it's legitimate to find ways to overcome infertility. We believe there are moral and immoral ways uh, mm -hmm. to deal with 
infertility. And the church has a lot of guidance on this going back to the 1980s. There was a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith called the Gift of Life. It's Donum Vitae in Latin, the Gift of Life, which addressed the morality of various procedures and, and technologies to overcome infertility. And basically, the church says that some methods are moral. They're, they're fine because they, they respect human life, they respect marriage, etc., and the marital act. But then there are some methods that do violence to the dignity of the human person and the institution of marriage. And therefore, those kinds of methods are immoral. So if there's a medical intervention that's being used to help a couple who's infertile, that's helping or assisting the marriage act to achieve pregnancy, that's fine. But if the intervention replaces the marriage act, mm. it's not fine. So one reproductive technology, which the church has judged to be immoral, and the church's teaching on this is very clear, is in vitro fertilization, IVF. I think there's some Catholics not aware of the church's teaching. They don't know it's immoral, and they've used it, uh, attempting to have children. Such couples aren't you know, subjectively guilty of sin if they didn't know it was immoral. And really, when they have children this way, like the, the, the caller said, these children are children of God. I mean, they have dignity. They are loved by their parents, and they should be loved by their parents, mm -hmm. like all children, despite the circumstances of their conception. They should be loved and cared for and cherished. But this is an immoral way of conceiving children. IVF, it does violence to, to both human dignity and to the Marriage Act. So I'll try to explain. Obviously, I think in case some aren't clear what in vitro fertilization is, it brings new life in a Petri dish. Children are engendered through IVF. We Sometimes they're called test tube babies. Several eggs of the mother are aspirated from the woman's ovary after she has taken a fertility jug that causes a number of eggs to mature at the same time. Semen is collected from the man, usually through masturbation. Obviously, that's sinful. And then the egg and sperm are united in a glass dish, and then conception takes place. New life is allowed to develop. Embryos are then transferred to the mother's womb, hoping that they'll survive. What's the problem with this? Well, number one, it eliminates the Marriage Act as the means of achieving pregnancy. Instead of helping the Marriage Act achieve its natural end, it eliminates it. The new life is not engendered through an act of love between a husband and a wife, but by a lab procedure, a laboratory procedure that's performed by doctors or technicians. Husband and wife are merely sources for the raw materials of egg and sperm, which are later manipulated by a technician to cause the sperm to fertilize the egg. And not infrequently, donor eggs or donor semen are used. Mm. And that means that the genetic father or the genetic mother 
of the child could be someone from outside the marriage. So that makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. But it's still problematic even if the egg and sperm come from the husband and the wife. Most often, several embryos are brought into existence. This is really problematic because only those embryos that have showed the greatest promise of growing to term are implanted in the womb. So what happens to the others? They're either discarded or used for experiments, frozen. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible offense against human life. This, this is human life. So you might have a baby that's born from this, but there might be other lives that are killed in the process or snuffed out in the process. They'll call it things like fetal reduction or selective reduction, where they'll discard some of the embryos. So they use these terms. Sometimes they'll be monitoring the baby in utero and see that some have defects or not as healthy as others, and they'll remove them. They'll eliminate them, you know. So that's also diminishing the value of human life. You know, if there's too many babies or if there's a baby that has a problem. Now, so you say, okay, now let's get down to the basics of this. Children should not be seen as products. Hmm. The marital act, the way human life is meant to come into the world is through the marital act. And it's not a, shouldn't be seen as a manufacturing process. And that's what IVF does. Again, children are not products. They are human beings, you know, are to be reverenced as sacred. You know, never are they to be used as a means to an end, not even to satisfy the deepest wishes of an infertile couple. Husbands and wives, you know, I, I heard one say, make love, they do not make babies. They give expression to their love for one another, and then a child is engendered by that act of love. Whereas in IVF, children are engendered through a technical process, mm -hmm. eliminated if they're found to be defective. There's kind of like a quality control involved. The destruction of human embryos is just unacceptable. And every person has a right to be conceived and to be born within marriage and from marriage. And conception should occur from the Marriage Act, which by its very nature is ordered toward loving openness to life, not from the manipulations of technicians. So it's really quite dehumanizing. You know, they often will call children products of conception. Well, they're more than products. And this has become a big industry, the reproductive technology industry. And it's very profitable. It's very expensive. Couples mm -hmm. who have tried... IVF know how expensive uh, it is. And I want to really stress that there are moral ways to overcome infertility. There's a number of ways. You can have surgery that could, depending on what the problem is, mm -hmm. it could be in the reproductive system, there might be a blockage in the man or in the woman that prevent fertilization from taking place. There are fertility drugs that can be used with the caution that large multiple pregnancies can can be difficult, put mothers at risk and babies at risk too. So there's a lot of other ways. I'm not a doctor, but uh, you know, NAPRO technology is very good. We have some very good fertility doctors here in our diocese, both in Fort Wayne and South Bend, mm -hmm. that can help couples who are who are dealing with this very, very uh, challenging situation. 
and painful situation. Yeah. You mentioned a document at the beginning of this. What was that again? Donum Vitae, okay. which means gift of life. So if people do a search for that, might be able to pull that up. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Another listener said, are there objective historical sources that prove the existence of Jesus? Maybe this could be a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be honest. You know, the historicity of Jesus really was, did Jesus of Nazareth really exist? I mean, almost all scholars who've investigated the history of Christianity say, yes, we have historical proof that Jesus existed. Now, you know, there might be some disagreement on some of the details of his life that we find in the Gospels, but but a question comes up, well, is it just because of what we read in the Gospels that mm-hmm. we know that Jesus existed? Well, no, we have other sources, too. I mean, the letters of St. Paul. is. So I guess you could say, well, is there anything beyond the New Testament? Obviously, the New Testament is authentic and, and shows, teaches that, about Jesus' existence, but there also is, we find mention of Jesus in other sources, Outside the Bible, outside the New Testament, there's Jewish sources and there's Roman sources. There's historians very early on that uh, wrote about this Jesus of Nazareth. So there'd be very few serious scholars who would doubt the historicity of Jesus. The first author, I think, that ever mentioned him was a Jewish historian named Josephus. And Josephus wrote a history of Judaism and this was around the year 93 AD, and he has two references to Jesus in his work. About 20 years after Josephus, there were Roman politicians who wrote about Jesus, Pliny and Tacitus. Tacitus, for example, mentions in his history that Jesus was executed while Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in charge of Judea, and it was during the reign of the emperor Tiberius. So that kind of fits with what the gospel says. Mm -hmm. So we have these historical sources outside the gospels that concur with what the gospel says. So I don't think it's really controversial now to say that Jesus existed. Also, we find in the earliest literature of Jewish rabbis, Jesus being mentioned. So yeah, I don't think any serious scholar today doubts that there was a historical Jesus. Okay. Just a reminder, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Coming up, Bishop will answer more of your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. I'll ask questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer, like this one. Have you ever visited the Vatican Apostolic Archives? Can you talk about what is kept there? No, I never did. I've been to the Vatican Library, but not the archives. It used to be called the Vatican Secret Archive. It just Hmm. got its name changed about a year ago. 
So it's interesting. Did the secrecy that, change? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I just, <laughs> the, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, the idea of secret archive, which just wasn't accurate. Okay. I mean, it's, uh, it's really called the Vatican apostolic archive. The thing is the, there are papers in that, in the archives that, that are not public yet, especially if the, for example, they, and this is kind of typical because when people are still living and I think the practice was the archives get made public, become public after 75 years after that Pope dies or something. I'd have to mm. double check that, but something like that, because Pius XII's of just his pontificate and all, and, and the millions of, of uh, documents and papers and letters are now public that, you know, takes years also to catalog and everything. But basically the archives contain papers, correspondence, all kinds of documents that the church has accumulated through the centuries. And the Vatican archive was really separated from the Vatican library back in the 17th century. And these archives are open to researchers, open to historians. A person has to have access, uh, so they would have to write for permission to go into the archives to do research. But as I said, I, I've never been there. Uh, I've never been in the archives. I've never had a reason to be. If I ever, I mean, that would I would love to. If I was ever like had time to do a history project or write about something, it would be a great source for information. Is it all paperwork, or is there also items like you might see in a museum? Like, uh... I think it's mostly documents, okay, letters, things okay. like that. I don't think artifacts. You know, I think they would be probably in the. Uh, another part like the Vatican Museum. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure though. All right. But they say, you know, if you look, I, I've heard that it's like 53 miles of shelving <laughs> in the, in the, in the archives. Wow. So, I mean, it's huge and, uh, good luck finding I think those, some go back to the middle ages, you know, they lost a lot of documentation, you know, when, you know, for example, the French invasion and different things. So, Things have been lost through the centuries too, but but they, they have a lot, yeah. All right. Another listener asked, a friend of mine believes in the rapture. Can you talk about what it is? I'm assuming it's not consistent with the Catholic faith. Oh my goodness. That's, yeah, I mean, this was a belief that really only came about in the 1800s, I think back in the 1830s, this theory that you see in these left behind novels or also Hal Lindsey back in the 1970s made it, it uh, popular. It's, it's basically the view that, and they misinterpret some scripture, especially uh, St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians chapter four, verses 16 to 17, where it says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's where they misinterpret. They have this idea that before the second coming of Christ, there would be this other coming of Christ where he would snatch uh, some up into the air. That's what's called the rapture. They'll be caught into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And they say then follows the what they call the great tribulation and then a thousand year reign and then the actual second coming of Christ. Sometimes this idea of the rapture 
It's called premillennial dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. <laughs> okay. That so they separate the rapture and the second coming of Christ as two events that are separated by this time of tribulation. That there will be a future millennial reign of Christ on earth. And the idea that Christians will be taken up from earth prior to this time of tribulation. You know, there are a lot of people who accept it. And I, it's hard to believe because really it wasn't even proposed until the 1830s. This doesn't go back to, you know, the early church or anything. Um, uh, so it's very different from Catholic doctrine, very different from uh, a good uh, understanding of the scriptures. This idea of the rapture that they have this secret event in which these Christians will be brought up, you know, caught up into the clouds. It's just really not good scriptural interpretation. It's very incorrect and misleading and contrary to historic uh, Christianity. So I'd say avoid those kinds of things, those kinds of uh, books. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop. This is always educational and fun to to get to hear from you and get to learn from you. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.